Welcome to the St. Emeline's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And as listeners who've been joining us for the last two days of the London Trauma Conference will know, Natalie May, my St. Emeline's stalwart and pal and colleague, abandoned me today for her usual day job up in Manchester. But I've managed to talk one of our superb delegates from the conference into joining me for this end-of-day conversation. Caroline Leach is a consultant in emergency medicine in the West Midlands and an experienced pre-hospital care practitioner. Welcome along, Caroline. Thank you so much for joining me. As we did the last couple of days, we just thought we'd go through some of the highlights of the day to say what we've really enjoyed, some of the take-home messages, to try and just give an air of what's been happening at the London Trauma Conference today. So let's talk about um, Cliff Reed's talk. Obviously, we knew that he was going to give a a fantastic talk about how to deliver quality education in pre-hospital care. And I think some of the important messages really were that it's not about knowledge. You can do the flipped classroom, you can learn your SOPs before you start with an organisation. It's more really about how you train for performance. So he was talking about some of the things that they do at Sydney Hems, where they have a regular rotation of senior doctors in core specialties who aren't really familiar with the FEM environment. A lot of the things they do are such as stress exposure training, so they're trying to make the individual quite resilient. They do perturbation, which I hadn't heard of before, but that's basically applying a distraction to try and test the stability of the team. So if you're doing a simulation, you're doing an RSI, the team have succeeded in doing the RSI, that's all easy. Now you want to throw in something else, so let's make the patient vomit, let's make the monitor fail. So I thought that was all very valid. Um, And they also talked about the importance of cross-training so your paramedics and your doctors need to be training together and if you're going to set them an exam tell them that this is an exam of them as a team because that's what we're doing for real in the pre-hospital environment. As ever Cliff was hugely impressive as a speaker and gave us a lot to think about this idea that we really need to train as teams and the thing he really gave for me although today was very much focused on air ambulance work and pre-hospital care Many of us work in hospitals as well, and I was thinking about the teams we have at our induction sessions coming along, the FY2 doctors, the junior doctors, the SHOs, and whether or not we should be reframing how we do our induction for them as well. In fact, I really thought we could do a lot more for them and took some of those ideas that Cliff had. It may not be that you've got a bystander shouting at you in the street as you're trying to do something, but in the emergency department, we may have relatives who are cross and who are interrupting what we're doing you might have a nurse handing you an ECG as you're trying to resuscitate the septic patient and yet we don't quite treat it in the same way as perhaps the people in the pre-hospital environment do for training so I took a lot away from that and really want to think about how it is we move that into in-hospital care as well we should mention that today was put together by the Norwegian Air Ambulance so there was a strong Scandinavian feel to the day which was really welcome to see how these other services operate outside the UK, gave a more international perspective to what we were learning. Any other sessions this morning that particularly took your fancy? So um, we heard from another uh, forensic pathologist. Uh, This was Professor Guy Rutty. He's a chief forensic pathologist from the East Midlands. Uh, very different to the talk we heard yesterday, and he really described how modern forensic pathology is about applying the clinical techniques that we use to actually investigate the cause of death. So now, uh, commonly, CT scans are being used as post-mortem investigations. That's getting rid of the surgical post-mortem. They're using angiography as well to detect uh, where the person was hemorrhaging from after trauma. And they're also using point-of-care toxicology testing, which is only taking them 45 minutes rather than sending them off to a lab. 
So I think as a pre-hospital provider, we always want to learn from those patients that we haven't been able to save. I want to know the clinical signs that I saw and the management that I gave what were the injuries, did I get it right, and is there anything else we could have done? And I think if we have CT results, that may be really useful in changing what we do. A lot of this morning actually focused on how we can continue learning. We had Cliff describing this training, then we had forensic pathologists talking about how we learn when things not necessarily go wrong, but when patients die. And we also moved on to the idea of clinical governance and whether or not clinical governance structures need to be particularly tight or how those need to work. There's some elements of feedback that I think are very tricky and very difficult. We have to be careful with how we feedback, especially in these highly emotive circumstances. But it seemed to me, I think, that governance needs to be pretty structured and regular and needs to happen in a situation where people feel comfortable. So we had an argument that governance should be tight. So does that mean then that your SOPs must be followed to the T in every patient? Does it mean that if you deviate from those clinical guidelines, you're in trouble if it goes wrong? I don't think that was discussed in quite the same way as I interpreted the question, because I think that perhaps not every patient needs that tight protocol. I think there are uh, occasions when we do deviate. But of course we need governance, of course we need training. It's just, should every patient receive that same tight guideline care? The morning finished with... Another really great session about how we transport and transfer difficult patients. So for those of us in the UK doing HEMS, it's more of the primary stuff. But we've got quite an Australasian contingent, as well as our Scandinavian friends, who are obviously doing retrieval medicine as well, talking about those difficult cases. And we really, they fell into three groups. The mad or bad patient, if you like, the psychiatrically unwell patient, the bariatric patient, and then the patient with the infectious disease, which of course has become very topical now. There were a couple of nuggets in there that I thought we could take away. Yeah, so Stefan, he's worked on London Hems and he's currently working um, in South Australia for MedStar. And um, it's not uncommon in South Australia for them to have two-hour retrieval times. So sometimes their management is going to be a bit different to ours. So for the acutely psychotic patient um, who's at high risk to the community, in the old days they were obviously RSIing those patients, making sure they are absolutely safe for transfer in the air. What they've been finding is that they can safely sedate a patient with ketamine. So you using 0.25 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram as an initial bolus and then en route they're actually using an infusion of 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram. That's appearing to be very effective for maintaining sedation, getting them safely to appropriate care and they don't appear to be having any complications at all. And I think actually there's been a case series published on this which um, would be good if guys want to have a look at that. I think that series was published by Min Lekong, who anyone who uses Twitter will be more than aware of. And actually, I'd be surprised if he hasn't already tweeted the fact he's on this podcast now within several seconds of me discussing him on this podcast. Min, it's lovely that you're listening. The other groups that Stefan discussed were the bariatric patient, and he gave some surprising statistics about the Australian population, which I'm actually going to put to the back of my mind. I like to imagine the Australians as being very fit, pretty buff, muscly, suntanned, sporty individuals. He kind of pointed out that that's not necessarily true. We don't need to quote statistics here, but it turns out that you're all eating too much if you live in Australia. But these patients cause a problem if you want to put them on an aeroplane or in a helicopter. And there was a particular idea about 
what you want to do for positioning these patients if they need intubation. So, um, great idea. If you carry a VAC mat and you want to perform an RSI on your bariatric patient, they suggested you can use the VAC mat under the patient as a wedge. So that's giving the ramping effect to obviously help your patient not desaturate when they stop breathing and to maximise intubation conditions in that difficult patient group. After a very busy morning, we had a lovely lunch as ever. It's the Royal Geographical Society in Kensington. We'd expect nothing less. The lunch is, In fact, the food and catering and the whole environment has been delightful for the whole week. After lunch, we actually had a pretty difficult, very moving hour where we heard about two particular EMS disasters, one from Norway and the Glasgow police crash, where very brave speakers involved in those services stood up and told us about what had happened and how they dealt with those crashes. It's not really something we can relay that adequately on the podcast, but they were hugely moving, incredibly brave and hard to listen to. And if you are a pre-hospital provider, just something to give you food for thought about the safety that we need to consider and the fact that sometimes dreadful things do happen. And some of the things we might need to think about if that was to ever, heaven forbid, happen to any of our services. The whole room, I think, just admired them for being able to stand up. For these guys, this this is less than a year since some of these things had happened. And I just was full of admiration, really. A quick coffee break, which everyone really needed, actually, to get a bit of fresh air after that session. And we moved on to the session designed for us emergency physicians, the ones with the short attention span, some quick hit facts and discussions really hitting on some key topics which I guess we all talk about all the time. We started with one of my favourites and that's the discussion about whether we should be using cervical collars anymore. How do you feel about it Caroline? I am not a lover of cervical collars. I think it's so difficult isn't it? We really don't have evidence of the benefit of cervical collars but they have become established practice and therefore it is going to be really hard to change. So we heard all the arguments that we know already cervical spine mobilisation by collars is not great but we're hoping and I have heard on the grapevine that the faculty of pre-hospital care are actually going to look at this next year and they are going to publish some consensus advice on the use of cervical collars for immobilisation so I'm really looking forward to that and I'm hoping that we get some sensible advice from them. So we had the cervical collar debate. I think I'm pretty clear on where I stand with that. Uh, Everything we do in medicine should be a balance between harm and benefit. And I really do struggle with cervical collars to see the massive benefit against the harm that I think they may be doing. But you should make up your own minds. And of course, currently, we're still using them for triple immobilisation. We then had a few more quick hits. One discussing whether or not we should be giving other blood products with pre-hospital blood. Does your service use blood pre-hospital? No, we don't actually. We probably don't see that many patients who we feel would benefit from it. Our service sees medical patients as well as trauma patients and we don't have dispatching that would enable us to only go to severely injured patients such as London Hems does. I'm really interested to see what the results are though. There are a couple of patients I have seen where I do wonder if their outcome would have been better if I had have had blood to hand to give to them. We then had a couple of other sessions. One was about doing pre-hospital blood testing. I have to say I'm not a massive fan of blood testing in any environment, and so doing pre-hospital blood testing uh, wasn't one of my favourites. But Dan Ellis, a very eloquent speaker, did present some coherent arguments why it might be a good idea. So I think his argument was, if you are going to do a blood gas in ED 
and it's going to change what you do, then why are you not doing that blood gas in the pre-hospital environment? It is feasible. There are devices now available, and he talked about the iStat as an example of that. Um, you might use your gas results as a triage tool, so it might change what you do. It might mean that you do give that patient some fluid when otherwise you might not have done so. And he also highlighted that the end-tidal CO2 result that we get is often not the same as the PCO2 that we get when we do a gas, and so it may be useful for that as well. One other talk I'd just like to highlight, we have done a separate podcast with him, was Mark Wilson's talk about how we can get people to respond quicker in times of cardiac arrest or including to impact brain apnea. Something was discussed a couple of days ago. Just another plug, really, for his Good Sam app. Mark will tell me that it's not his app, it's really a community, but Mark's been at the forefront of driving the development of this astonishing innovation in medical technology. An app that can be downloaded for free. If you're a responder, you just download it from the App Store, Google Play, and you can then be alerted to somebody nearby where you're within metres of helping them. And if you're non-medical, spread the news to your friends, relatives, it's Christmas, over the turkey, you want to tell them, they can become alerters. So should anything ever happen nearby, they can use the app. Mark demonstrated the app and how it works. All hugely impressive. I cannot quite put into words how much respect I have for him and his colleagues for developing it. And please, after this podcast, just immediately go to the App Store, Google Play, download it if you haven't already, and tell your friends about it. And then we came to the sort of end of the day. Cliff Reed was up once more talking about apneic oxygenation. So that's something that we do use in our service, and I do think it's useful. So the idea is that you're going to be doing an RSI, you're going to attach some nasal specs to the patient, as well as providing oxygenation via the mask. And at the point of laryngoscopy, you're going to turn that nasal oxygen up. Uh, As long as you've got a patent airway, they are going to be receiving some oxygen passively, and that may increase the time that you've got to intubate that patient without them desaturating. I certainly have used it. The only thing is, it is slightly a faff to set up, but I think that's partly training and simulation. You just need to keep practicing with it, and it becomes normal practice. So a straightforward message, really. Nasal oxygenation during pre-hospital RSI, in fact, in-hospital RSI, again, that harm-benefit balance that we're always going on about, it's not going to do you any harm. It can only do you benefit. Just do it. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us on the St. Emily's podcast. It's been an absolute joy. Have you enjoyed yourself at the trauma conference? I have. It's been great. As always, it's not just about learning new things. It's about creating ideas for what you might take away and use in your organisation, whether that's your pre-hospital or your ED. Keep enjoying your emergency medicine, everyone. Keep enjoying your pre-hospital emergency medicine, too. Hopefully we've given you some things to think about over the last three days. We'll be bringing the podcast out over the coming weeks and months of the interviews we've managed to record with some of the speakers. We hope you find them useful. And as ever, take care. And goodbye from me.